You're listening to Kingdom Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Dr. Amelia Almorza Hidalgo. Dr. Almorza is a postdoctoral researcher at the Universidad Pablo de Olavide in Seville. She's part of a project funded by the European Research Commission entitled An Artery of Empire, Conquest, Commerce, Crisis, Culture and the Panamanian Junction, 1513 to 1671, which is directed by Dr. Bethany Aram at Pablo de Olavide. Dr. Almorza received her PhD in history from the European University Institute in Florence in 2011. Her doctoral research focused on the analysis of the immigration of women and families to the Viceroyalty of Peru in the 16th and 17th centuries, particularly in relation to the processes of social mobility in the colony. Her research has been published in a number of articles and essays, and she's a member of several national and international research groups. Her current research forms part of a larger project which applies historical, archaeological and archaeometric methodologies to evidence of encounters between peoples and goods from Europe, America, Africa and Asia that took place on the Isthmus of Panama during the 16th and 17th centuries. Dr. Almorza, Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you're very welcome. So today, Melia, we're speaking about Spanish women on transatlantic voyages in the 16th and 17th centuries. As we know, uh, Spanish immigration to the New World was one of the most significant waves of relocation in human history, in terms of numbers and in terms of the impact on the American landscape and its people. And while the earliest settlers uh, to America tended to comprise young male recruits as part of groups of on conquest and settlement expeditions, the composition of Spanish immigration to America seems to have changed by the mid-16th century. Immigrants now tended to come from non-elite groups comprising artisans, small tradesmen and so on. Now you, Amelia, have noted that another of the key features of Spanish immigration to America in the period is the significant presence of women, particularly from the late 16th to the early 17th centuries. Um, can you provide us with some context for this? Yes, sure. The Spanish emigration to the New World began after the conquest. Since the beginning of the 16th century, the volume of immigrants gradually grew until it reached its highest rate towards the end of the century. Some scholars have estimated that in 16th and 17th century, 450,000 Spaniards went to America. Uh, it's the first massive transatlantic emigration during the early modern age. At that moment, the Castilian population was 6 million, so this immigration didn't have an impact on the territory in terms of population. However, if we consider the transatlantic voyage and the difficulties in organizing the journey, it was a significant number. I have to mention that here I'm considering free emigrants in contrast with African slaves, because during the same period, 16th and 17th century, uh, 600,000 Africans were forced to make to move to America. In the case of the Spanish emigration, the presence of women and family groups was especially relevant and were concentrating between 1560 and 1620. During the conquest, Spanish women had a very small participation, but during the colonization, this increased. And from 1560, women made up 10 to 30 percent of the emigrants going to America. They mainly came from Southwest Spain, and the main uh, city of origin was Seville, which was the port of departure to America. 
Sebin is also important because many families had settled there during the 16th century because of the economic growth of the city. Also, a lot of families settled there waiting to be called by their relatives in America. Female immigrants generally, be, generally belong to what me, we may call medium mm -hmm. urban groups, such as artisans, family merchants, urban traders, small landowners, etc. But also, poor women managed to travel illegally. The most common way was as a servant of a passenger. In this way, many single and even married women crossed the Atlantic. Okay, so um, can you talk a little bit about the historiography uh, about early Spanish immigration to the New World, um, particularly the work that deals with women? Well, there are actually a few works dealing with the issue of women and Atlantic Spanish immigration. The first scholar to consider women in the analysis of immigration was Peter Boyd Boyman in the 70s. He studied passenger records and developed various statistics separating men from women. More recently, Lourdes Diaz Trechuelo published a study on the Andalusian immigration to America in the 17th century, considering also family and women, and that work uh, was published in 1990. Also, Ida Almat's work, Emigrants and Society, Extremadura and America in the 16th century in 1989, is the best analysis of transatlantic immigration focusing on transatlantic family networks. And finally, very recently, in 2016, Alison Posca has published Gender Crossings, Women and Migration in the Spanish Empire, so which analyzes family emigration from the area of north, north of Spain, mainly Galicia, to Argentina in the 18th century. So it's a beautiful book and, and it's a different process than I studied. What about sources for uh, this kind of information? What can you tell us about the documentation that informs your work? Um, where is it from? Uh, how informative is it? And to what extent can we ascertain uh, women's voices from the documentation? Yes, and most of the sources to study Spanish immigration are held in the General Archive of the Indies in Seville. This archive contains all the documentation produced by the House of Trade, which was the institution in charge of controlling all the movement of people and products to America. The Spanish monarchy tried to control the immigration in order to avoid the passage of new Christians or foreigners. Because of this, there are complete passenger records and licenses to travel, uh, which every passenger had to submit. But these sources, have to be taken with a pinch of salt. I mean, ha they have to be considered carefully because there was a great deal of illegal immigration and only a small part of the passengers actually managed to get a license. Looking for women voices is always difficult for the early modern period. In this particular immigration, we can find them in family letters that were included in the licenses to travel. Illegal immigration is a big topic as well, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, yes, uh, it's, it's not, that is what makes it so difficult to make a real estimation, I mean, an estimation of the real numbers of immigrants. But some scholars, others, have calculated that almost 25% more than the, um, that the legal immigration was illegal immigration, unless others say that more than 50%. Also depends on the moment, I mean, because all the control over the 
the immigration process vary over the time. At the beginning of the 16th century, it was very, very few control. So we had very, very few uh, sources. But in my period, which is okay, <laughs> at the second half of the 16th century, uh, the increase of control give us much more sources. So much of the documentation you describe, uh, and you alluded to it briefly, um, it involves correspondence from husbands uh, to their wives, inviting them to the new world, sometimes many years after they themselves had emigrated. Can you elaborate on this uh, for our listeners? Indeed, family correspondence is one of the most beautiful sources we can find about immigration. In them, we can find the real voices of immigrants, men and women. They are part of some of the licenses to travel to America submitted to the Crown. Usually, the head of the travel group submitted the request in which he or she had to prove their old Christian origins and the motive to emigrate. The call for a relative already settled in America was a strong reason to justify living as the monarchy encouraged family union. So people included in the request a copy of the letters received by their relatives in America, by their husband, brothers and sisters, son or, or daughters, which provide us an extremely rich source to study this immigration pro process. Most of the letters, 650, were published in Spanish by Enrique Ote in 1988 in a book called Cartas Privadas de Migrantes a India. Some of them were translated and published in English by James Locker and Enrique Ote in 1976 in a book called Letters and People to the Spanish Indies. Continuing with this uh, theme then, um, can you give us some examples or case studies that describe um, how this actually worked? Yes, yeah, uh, sure. The general pattern was that the husband traveled first and once settled in America, he called to the rest of the family to join him. The calling was also usual among siblings. Also, the period between the departure and the men and the family being reunited may last from two to 20 years. And in some cases, the family in Spain was abandoned and the men never called. And this happened often. An example, a particular example of how the calling worked is the following. We have Sebastián Carrera, who emigrated a year after Mary, Mary Sánchez, a resident of Seville. Once he settled as a car dealer in Callao, Peru, he wrote to his wife 11 years later, inviting her to travel along with her brother Alonso Sánchez and his family. In the petition, he pointed out that his brother-in-law, and I quote, is a tailor, and such trades populate and ennoble the lands. Another quote. Finally, the permit was obtained by the wife, who by, the, who by then was 30 years old, along with her brother Alonso Sanchez, his wife and children, and Mary Sanchez's father, Juan Sanchez de Piedraita, a 70-year-old widower. So as a consequence of the husband who had settled first and called, a group of four adults and some children moved to America. This is a case, this case is an example which shows the relation between the wife's invitation and the final group of travel. Um, it seems that at some point, Spanish authorities made it compulsory for married men living in America to bring their wives over from Spain. Why was this? Well, at 
as I mentioned before, the Spanish monarchy encouraged family union in America in the context of the politics of colonization. The settlement of Spanish families in the new territories was, was absolutely crucial to assure the control of the new land conquest. The population of the Spanish new cities was important to their economic and political growth. The presence of Spanish women was also encouraged as a way to bring the Spanish Catholic culture. Also, married men were more likely, likely to settle and become vecinos and become divorced. And for example, encomenderos were obliged to marry in order to keep their encomiendas. So it was really a part of a strategy. In addition, women who had been abandoned in Spain would become poor and create a social problem. Because of this, women could submit a legal procedure against their husbands in America to the House of Trade in order to force them to come back to Spain. So really there was a politic of trying to protect the abandoned women somehow. So was bigamy among Spanish men in the New World a common problem for the authorities? Well, the, the alleged separation between husband and wife was definitely a problem for the Spanish crown. Because not only were women left poor in Spain, but also men would find new partners in America and have children out of marriage. Sometimes men married again in the colony, which produced the problem of bigamy. In order to avoid this situation, single passengers had to prove that they were single. And uh, married men had to present their wife's permission to leave. But in practice, the controls on the passenger marital status was so weak, and a lot of married men and a lot of married women moved to America, abandoning their partners in Spain. Once in America, bigamy was persecuted by the Inquisition because it was a breach of the ecclesiastical law. The Catholic marriage should last until the death of one of the members, and bigamy was considered a great offense to the church, a great sin. Despite the church and monarchy prosecution, abandoning the family and creating a new one in America was a common occurrence in the context of transatlantic immigration. Also, we should, we should mention that many of the new families were not based on marital status, on marital relations. The unmarried relationships, called amancebamientos, were very common in America, as they were very common in Spain, and those were not prosecuted by the Inquisition. <laughs> yeah, it's, there's such a difference between the regulations made by the Casa de la Contratación and the reality. And like, so many things change between the casa and the ship. <laughs> so by the time you get to the ship, the rules are completely abandoned in many cases, aren't they? <laughs> yes, I mean, but it's a very interesting dynamic in how do you deal research? Because uh, still you have to study the politics and the official structure. Also, because, for example, in my case, passengers really had to deal with these different administrative or this politics. And as a result of this dealing, they move in a particular way. So, for example, in the case of women, um, actually the politic of uh, encouraging the family union in America helped the movement of, of women 
both legal and illegally. And, and I may say that in the case of the history of women, one of the problems has been that a lot of analysis has been done only looking at the law and only looking at regulations and only looking at, at the big politics or at the religious perspective. But there is less work done in the actual action of women, in, in the actual movement, in their actual life, etc., etc. So this is one of the steps that, I, that I'm trying to do in this research. So the data that we do have, um, it appears to suggest that uh, of the women who did migrate, most were either married or widowed. Um, are there any cases where young single women embarked on transatlantic voyages without an invitation? Um, was this even possible? Yes. Uh, well, indeed, women who emigrated in family groups were mainly married or widows. But there were also a lot of single women traveling on their own. The most common way to travel as a single woman was in the form of a servant, a criada, hired by a family or by a single male passenger to serve them during the voyage. They didn't have to present credentials of purity of blood. So it was an easy way to travel and cheaper for those who were banned or who were poor. Also, the journey was very dangerous for women and letters often included advice to women to travel with company. So if a single woman wanted to travel, joining a male passenger or a family was also a matter of safety. Women could also pay for illegal transfers as secret passengers or get second-hand licenses. Uh, but the easiest way to, to travel was to get a servant position. Sadly, we don't have much information about these women as servants didn't have to submit any documentation to the House of State. So, I mean, the servant position was basically the big hole in the administration <laughs> because even when the House of State demands a lot of information from the head of the group, of the family or the help of the group of travel. I mean, mm -hmm. the rest of the group and neither these servants had to submit anything. They, didn't, they did not have to prove anything. And in this sense, there was a different control between men and women. Men were much more controlled in their passage to America, while women had a much more weak control because the crown wanted women to go. They want women to pass. And also because they saw women as not uh, have not dangerous neighbors. At the end, they could pass much more easily. So ironically, in the early modern era, women had much more freedom of movement than men, essentially, no? Um, uh, yes, it's a general idea, but as they were looked as weak persons, and somehow, in terms of law and political perspective, they were looked as weak and dependent, etc. At the end, law protect them. And in a specific case of de-emigration, uh, the the last, the ultimate uh, objective of controlling um, the passengers was to avoid dangerous, the dangerous elements. And women were not considered as dangerous. And also, as I said, uh, it was 
it was a real sense of encouraging the movement of women because uh, women, Spanish women in America, mean the Spanish culture, the Spanish families, the Spanish religious, etc., etc. And that was really important for the Crown. So without women, they had no colonization. That was quite clear. So that's why they didn't control them so much. And at the end, for them, it was much more easiest, much more easy to pass than men. Can you give us a sense of what life was like for women in the 16th and 17th century in, in Spain, uh, particularly in towns and cities that saw the highest rates of immigration, such as uh, Seville? Uh, in other words, um, how prominent were push factors in determining the decision to leave for America? Yes, well, it's difficult to explain in few words how life was for women in 16th and 17th century Spain, as there were so many different situations. Women's life were determined not only by gender, but also by race, economy, and status. So the context of women in the elite was different from those of urban groups or from the poorest population. If we look for the possible push factors for women to emigrate, we should concentrate on Seville, which was the main city of origin for female immigrants. The city of Seville had grown in the 16th century because of the trade to America, and a lot of families had settled there waiting to be called by their families in America. Because of this, the Venice ambassador Navajero said that the city was, and I quote, in the hands of women. The economic growth of the city actually helped the immigration of families. Because immigration needed an investment to pay for the licenses of the group, the passage, the food for the journey, and accommodation, etc. So economic prosperity allowed families to gather enough money to finance it all. Also, poor people were attracted to America, the land of promises, where they could prosper and gain more and more easily than in Spain. And how difficult was life for women in Spain whose husbands had already immigrated to America? Um, what were the most difficult aspects that they faced? So married women who were left behind found themselves in a very difficult position. They were now in charge of the children and older dependent relatives, such as elderly parents. They also had to manage the family economy, which may have included properties and businesses. In order to help with the econo economic and legal issues, there was sometimes a brother to help the woman. But the options for married women left behind were few, and they often became very poor. They could not act freely like a widow, and they could not marry again, which may improve the situation. There's, well, there is a good analysis of abandoned women in Cadiz, uh, written by Maria Jose de la Pascua, Mujeres Solas, Historias de Amor y de Abandono en el Mundo Hispánico, in 1995. And there she uh, made this beautiful analysis in all, about all the different situations women had to be. But as I said, basically it was more difficult in dealing with the economic and legal issues as abandoned uh, women. Were there compelling reasons for women to travel to America aside from being invited? Yes, uh, actually there was a crucial pull factor for single, single women to immigrate which were the possibility of a good marriage in America. Because of the economic growth of the Spanish towns in America, the option of finding a wealthy husband 
were higher, much more higher there than in the peninsula. In fact, family letters often talk about the great possibilities to marry in America for Spanish single young women. And, and as I said, that would have been a very, very good uh, reason to emigrate for those single poor women in Seville. So you've uh, spoken briefly about familial ties. Uh, how important were familial ties and networks in providing support for immigrants? Well, one of the most important mechanisms for long-distance immigration is the family chain. That is to say how families provide the main connection that determines the voyage. In 16th century Atlantic immigration, family networks, networks were absolutely crucial in order to provide information and financial support. In the case of women, those family networks were even more important. The difficulties and dangers of the, may, of the journey made them look for trusty traveling companions. Also, family was absolutely crucial for successful settling in America, again providing information and economic support. So for a woman, having a prosperous relative in America was the greatest pull factor to emigrate. When we talk about the roles of women in 16th century travel, there may be a tendency to view them as uh, rather passive actors. But this, is, this isn't necessarily the case, is it? Uh, and in fact, as you've pointed out, uh, women often participated actively in the decision-making process, as well as the logistics that accompanied such a monumental undertaking. Um, can you give us some examples of this? Yes, uh, indeed, women participated actively in the immigration of the family group, in the decision-making process and in the management of the immigration. The head of the family traveling first was the result of an agreement between husband and wife because both had expectations of a better life in the Indies. I mean, I want to avoid the idea that we, men decided to emigrate and then women and family follow. No. I mean, the family invest they, uh, some money in the travel of the men because it was an agreement behind between wife and, and husband. One of the better examples of a negotiation before the trip in the hands of a woman is the case of the family Ramirez de Aguilera. The process began with Alonso Ramirez de Aguilera, who was living in Lima, Peru, in 1594. After a while, he became prosperous, so he called his wife, Maria Fernandez, who was living with their children in Spain, in a small town called Zafra, Extremadura. He sent 200 pesos for the trip, and he recommended that she should travel with a man called Sebastián Gallego. The wife, Maria Fernández, started to organize the trip. First, she refused the company of Sebastián Gallego and asked her own brother to go with her, who refused. That caused her so much anger that the letter says, and I quote, the anger caused me to have a fever because she was really mad at her brother. So she had to find a way to force Juan Ramirez de Aguilera, her husband's brother, and her brother-in-law, to take the lead of the trip. In order to force him, he contacted some of the women in the family. First, she wrote to his wife, Ana Garcia, who was Maria Fernandez's sister-in-law, and lived in Triguero, a small town in Huelva, in Andalusia. In the letter, he explained 
the journey and encourage her to convince her husband, saying that, and I quote again, wives can get a lot out of their husbands. End of the quote. I mean, she's really saying you have to force your husband. As a result, actually, Ana Garcia sent a letter to her husband, Juan, who was working in Seville at the time. Also, Maria Fernandez, still working from Zafra, wrote directly to Juan Ramirez Aguilera in Seville, the poor man, saying that he had previously promised to take her to America and demanding his responsibility as a man because with him, he should travel with more honor. It was also a question of honor, going safety. In addition, Juan was also pressured by two single sisters who were living in Ciudad Real, another small city from Castilla-La Mancha, to where the Ramirez family were native. In a very harsh letter, they accused him of not, of not attending to them and mismanaging the family businesses. So as a consequence, they were very poor there in Ciudad Real. Finally, Juan Ramirez had to move to Madrid and ask for the travel license for himself, his wife and children, his sister-in-law, Maria Fernandez, with her children, and his two single sisters from Ciudad Real. This shows how Maria Fernandez, from the small village of Zafra, was able to convince the other women in her husband's family to travel to the Indies and force Juan Ramirez de Aguilera to go as the leader of the group. This example shows a very strong situation on the part of the women, mainly because the letters to the brother are not asking for a favor, but they are demanding their rights and given promises. The result was the creation of a large group treat with one man, four women, and a lot of children. So if you only look at the license permit, what you see is a group led by a man followed by four, men, four women and the children. But if you analyze the letters, it was actually the women who organized the trip. So uh, you really need to go beyond the official records to look for the actual voices and look for the actual uh, organization of the trip to see how it manages. And here, races very clearly, their voices. That's extraordinary. Um, how much of a risk was it for individuals uh, settled in America to actually send home money uh, to family members in Spain to pay for their travel? Um, how could they be sure that it would actually reach its destination? Well, once people settled and succeeded in America, a lot of them tried to send remittance to their families in Spain, mainly silver. Sometimes, it was a donation to the family, and on other occasions, it was a budget to pay for the travel. The only way to send the money was to find a person they trusted who was returning to Spain from America. There were a lot of people making their way back, mainly merchants, soldiers, and sailors, but it was very difficult to find someone trustworthy. The connections between the families separated by the Atlantic was built upon networks of trust. And of course, sometimes people failed and the money got lost in the transfer. As you know, uh, life was particularly harsh on Spanish fleets to America in the 16th century. Um, can you talk about some of the dangers faced by women 
on these long transatlantic voyages? The journey itself was particularly dangerous. Passengers had to deal with hunger, thirst, illness, and problems such as boats in bad conditions to sail, the threat of pirates, and harsh weather conditions like storms or hurricanes. Also, the transatlantic trip was a dangerous time, especially for women. Few people could afford to pay a cabin on the boat, which would guarantee some privacy and safety. Most passengers had to share the boat space with the rest of the passengers and also with sailors and soldiers. Sharing a small area with so many people created dangerous situations for girls because, as a letter mentioned, and I quote, say, sea people are very cunning. We have sources of some episodes of sexual violence during the trip, which were reported afterwards in the House of Trade in Seville. And I also want to mention here that uh, this information was known by the people staying in Seville. I mean, most of the people have the idea of the emigrants as dreamers, as people who were young, male, not very conscious, not very grown up, uh, trying to make their, their life in America. But what I have, I mean, the, the family groups were people who actually knew the dangers of the trip, not only the sexual assaults, but also the weather conditions, the fire attacks, etc., etc., because they received in Seville continuously all the news coming to, to, to America. So they knew what was happening during the trip. And still, the, they, they did emigrate. And this amazing. This is amazing. How they could vote in those so small ships, in so uncomfortable conditions, in such a dangerous trip, with their children, their parents, their sisters. Their, I mean, there was really a dangerous situation. And it was because they had so, so much expectations of their lives in America. But behind, there was a, how could I say, a big decision that the family made, the decision to emigrate. I mean, it was a conscious big decision taken by the family, including the women of the family, of course, involving them in the decision. Was there anything they could do to ensure their safety while traveling? Uh, yes, uh, well, as a consequence of the risk, women who wanted to travel looked for a man to go with them. The continuous movement of people between Spain and America made it easy for women to find a man, male merchants, to accompany them on their trip. Another way was to organize travel in groups, which could include relatives, but also friends or neighbors. Joining a group was the safest way to travel, not only for women, but also for men. And I've also found that most of men also travel in groups. Now, I know it's difficult to generalize, um, but what kind of life awaited an immigrating woman in America, particularly in places of uh, higher Spanish settlement, such as Peru and uh, Mexico? Well, as you say, it's very difficult to generalize because there were so many different situations. Spanish women mainly settled in the large Spanish cities of America, uh, the capitals Mexico and Lima, and some other big Spanish cities, such as Puebla, Quito, or Trujillo. 
In the 16th century, most of these cities were growing economically, and many Spanish women were able to get a wealthy position, or even better social position that they had in Spain. So we can say that they succeeded. On the other hand, there were many others who didn't and remained poor. There were different factors to succeed, such as networks and previous connections, or the economic position at the arrival to America. So we have both situations. I mean, and here I also want to kind of destroy the typical image of Spanish as elite. Some of them reached the colonial elite, married well, get prosperous, but many others remain poor and had to manage in the urban cities, in the Spanish cities. I also, um, I get the sense from reading your work that uh, many of these women who followed their husbands, brothers, fathers, and so on to America, um, they were sometimes underwhelmed or greatly disappointed with their new surroundings and circumstances. Um, is this correct? Uh, yes, not all the immigrants were able to fulfill their expectations once they arrived in America. Uh, and as I said, not everyone succeeded. We have the case example of Maria de Córdoba. He wrote to her sister in Spain to show how angry he was. She was with the Indies. And I quote, Indies, with respect to Indians, the name is the only thing that exists. And it is, in my opinion, the worst land that there is in the world. She tells her sister that if she wants to meet them, she should take at least 1,000 ducados to start to negotiate in the Indies, which she considers a minimum inversion for beginning. And I explain here, um, the Indies was really a very good context to prosper, to get wealthier, but only if you have an, a big enough investment to start. Otherwise, you may find in very, very difficult situations. As well, for example, Maria de Córdoba talks about another sister in Peru who was suffering many sorrows because her Indians and house had been taken away from her due to the continuous absence of her husband. So, as I said, a lot of women found themselves al uh, alone, without their husbands, uh, abandoned again, and uh, without properties, business, money, etc. They got lost, really, and stuck. And the thing is that this emigration was a definitive uh, emigration. Uh, you never, uh, you don't consider that you may come back because at, at this moment, most the people, the immigrants knew that most of them would never come back. Now, I also note in your work um, some cases of abandonment of women by their husbands, uh, either by leaving them in Spain or abandoning them when the women actually arrived in America. Um, was this a common occurrence? Well, it certainly happened. Men in America were often involved in long-distance businesses. So marriage separation was quite common. In some cases, never uh, men never came back. Here we have an example. Isabel Mondragón, a woman who was living with her husband and children in Chile, in La Serena, discovered sometime that her husband, who was doing business in Lima, had escaped to Spain. And therefore, they had been abandoned in Chile. So she wrote to her brothers in Madrid, trying to force her husband to return. But he refused. 
he said that he was too old and that he was ill, etc. So he abandoned the family in Chile, not even in Peru. Chile at that moment was really a very, very last city, last area in the Spanish monarchy. So they, they had to manage. That was happened. And that was, I may say, quite often. I mean, abandoned family, it was not something that happened only in the framework of the Atlantic, but it was also very common in South America. And what kinds of problems could abandonment create for women then? Well, married women could manage family business in the absence of their husband, but they had a weaker position with dealing with economic and legal issues. Sometimes, as one of the examples I explained, they even lost their properties and became poorer because of the absence of the husband. Maria de Cordoba's case sounds fascinating. Uh, you've written about. Can you tell us about her? Uh, yes, Maria de Cordoba is a case study that shows how women were able to manage family networks in order to emigrate and build a new life in America. She was from Valladolid and married to Juan de Aro who went as a soldier to Italy in 1577. After her mother's death alone and thinking that her husband had died in Italy, Maria de Córdoba moved to Madrid to live with her uncle. Then in 1579, two years after her husband had left for Italy, he crossed the Atlantic with her brother, Juan de Córdoba, who was a religious man. In Peru, they had another sister, Ana de Córdoba, married to a merchant, Melchor Gomez. After arriving in Lima, she traveled to Potosí, where she was reunited with her sister in 1585. By that time, Maria de Córdoba had received suddenly news from her husband, who wanted to join her in Peru, which he did six years later, in 1592. 15 years after they had separated. So you may imagine the, the union, the new meeting of the, of the marriage couple. It's curious. Well, finally, she was able to accumulate a patrimony of several houses and create business ties with the merchant Simon, Simon Lopez in Lima. In Lima, she built a new life and even changed her name to Doña Luisa de Rojas. So even with the difficulties, women say that she succeeded. What do you think are the most important lessons to learn uh, from studying the migration of Spanish women to America in the early modern era? Well, there are some important lessons to be taken from this analysis. First, that gender is a variable category of analysis that raises new questions about the transatlantic immigration and the colonization process. We find particular characteristic in the immigration of women as they had to face specific issues and dangers during the trip or the abandon by husband. But also, studying women's migration gives us an insight into the mechanism of transatlantic movement of people. So we see how important were family networks, especially those of siblings and marital relations, and how people organize groups to travel in order to make a safer trip for men as well as for women. And finally, this study is an opportunity to look at women's agency during the early modern period. They had an active role in the decision-making of the trip and in the organization of the immigration. And I hope that you have enjoyed the research. So finally, um, 
Can we talk a little bit about your current research as part of uh, this project, um, Art Empire or an Artery of Empire? Um, how does it develop your, your, your research further? Yes, I'm currently working as a postdoctoral researcher at the project at Empire, uh, Conquest, Commerce, Crisis, Culture and the Panamayan Junction. And this uh, project, super directed by Dr. Bethany Adam, is compounded by a team of historians, archaeologists and DNA researchers. And we are studying the different processes of the early globalization in Panama. My specific research field at the moment is the movement of European products across the Isthmus and the relations between Panama and the vast royalty of Peru. So I'm mainly focusing on the European textiles uh, from uh, uh, living from Seville in the 16th and 17th century and uh, being sent to Peru. Well, I look forward to hearing the results of that project. Uh, Amelia, thank you very much. Thank you to you. It's been my pleasure to be here.